the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Is Saul among the prophets? Likewise, is Aquinas among the Protestants? Welcome to The Antithesis. My name is Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. Today we want to consider this last question. Is Thomas Aquinas among the Protestants? In order to begin our conversation, let's go to Canon 9 of the Council of Trent. We read this. If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification— and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the action of his own will, let him be anathema. Damned before the Lord. In response, John Calvin argued this in his Tracts and Treatises compilation in our form. Between them and us, there is this difference, that they persuade themselves that the movement comes from the man himself whereas we maintain that faith is voluntary because God draws our wills to himself. Why begin with the Council of Trent and Canon 9 of it? Because as we shall see, there is a direct connection between the theology of Thomas Aquinas and the Canons of Trent. Today, Thomas Aquinas, among a few scattered evangelicals, is getting a lot of attention. He's getting a glow up. And it's being said by some that Protestants, Reform types, Baptists, and others can and even should embrace Aquinas. He should be recognized as not just a solid theologian, not just one of our top theologians. Some are even making the case that he is our best theologian. He is the most important theologian we can read. You can find truth in Aquinas's body of thought. Let's say that at the outset. On certain ethical issues, he says some true things. He has different selections in his writings. He has voluminous writings where you'll read a passage and think that is a a solid formulation. Here's uh, one selection from uh, an early portion of the Summa. The Apostle says, Romans 9.16, It is not of him that willeth, namely to will, nor of him that runneth, namely to run, but of God that showeth mercy. And Augustine says that without grace men do nothing good when they either think or wish or love or act. So that's an example from Thomas Aquinas's writings of a passage that sounds generally good. But what did Thomas Aquinas stand for? Is he actually consonant, his theology that is, with Reformed thought? Should you embrace Aquinas? Not just is he a figure who is estimable in his body of output that many of us would recognize is a very gifted man— in natural terms. No, I'm asking a different question. Can modern-day Protestants 
accept Aquinas as one of their major pedagogues and tutors? Should we make that shift? Should we make that move? Let's just say at the outset, before we dive into seven key convictions of Aquinas, that that's what people are saying today. People are saying, yes, put him at the top of the list. Put him in your pantheon. Devote yourself to Aquinas. You've heard the wrong ideas about him. He's been mischaracterized. He's basically a Protestant, or if they don't use that language, he's one that Protestants can learn a tremendous amount from. So Aquinas, as I say, is getting his glow up. But let's think hard about Aquinas, and let's do so not with glosses and summaries and puff pieces. Let's actually go to his writings. Let's go to sentences from his body of work, and let's pull them out. And let's then think together as we go. Let's build a systematic case, at least in a form, and let's try to figure out whether Aquinas really is a thinker that not only academically-minded evangelicals should embrace, but whether people in the pew should embrace, because that's ultimately where this is going to go. If Aquinas really is the kind of lodestar that some professing evangelicals today are saying he is, then he shouldn't just be read in the seminaries. Uh, He shouldn't just be read in small groups of of devotees uh, in backyard settings. No, he should be He should be warmly embraced by all Protestants. He should be brought into small groups. Pastors should be regularly quoting him from the pulpit. If he's going to be embraced, let's embrace him. Let's embrace him all the way. We're not academic or esoteric, of course. As a people, we born-again believers ultimately know that our faith is always going back to the, the context of the local church. And so if Thomas Aquinas really is... The the key teacher or one of the key teachers of Protestants, if he has this wonderful body of doctrine to offer us that is life-giving and faithful to Scripture and, and packed full of divine grace, then let's bring him all the way in. Let's not leave him in the sitting room. Well, let's now examine whether we should make that move. A lot of people are confused today. A lot of people don't know much of what Aquinas wrote or taught He produced voluminous works, and so it's hard to even begin to get a grip on his writings and his ideas for the teeming majority of the church. But let's try to give at least a precis of some of the key ideas in his body of thought. First, we cannot know what God is. Aquinas says this, and the following quotes are mostly coming from the Summa Theologiae, his greatest book, his greatest set of books. Now, we cannot know what God is, but only what he is not, Aquinas writes. We must therefore consider the ways in which God does not exist rather than the ways in which he does. So here we're talking about an epistemological claim, and we're already on not just shaky ground, we're off any solid rock altogether. We cannot know what God is but only what he is not. False. We absolutely can know what God is, who God is. We do not do theology as Bible-loving Christians according to the via negativa. We do theology according to the revelation of God. All the theological enterprise for a born-again Christian starts with this 
principle. God has revealed himself. God has spoken. God has not left himself so far above us that we could never hear from him. No, God has revealed himself. God has even made himself plain, Romans 1, 18 to 21 teaches. We start as Christians, born-again believers, from the opposite starting point that Aquinas takes in his Summa. We can know what, no, not what, who God is, because we, as those made in his image, have been given the gift of his revelation. We don't know God as the creator knows himself. We know him only as creatures know him. We don't know him exhaustively then uh, to the to the fullest and furthest reaches of his being. But we do know God truly in all that he has revealed. And he has revealed himself both generally in the created order, in the things that have been made, and he has revealed himself specially, preeminently in his word, the word that gives us the theology of his son. So we do know who God is. We do know his attributes. We are not left to only say what we can not know about God and back our way into a doctrine of God blindfolded and with our eyes closed under the blindfold. We start from the opposite standpoint that Aquinas starts from, and we say, no, we absolutely know God, and we know God immediately. Every person knows God, not salvifically, of course. We all need to be born again. We need to be regenerated by the marvelous grace of God. And yet every person knows God not through a lengthy process of pedagogy, not through rational proofs, not through the five proofs that Aquinas promoted. No, we all know God immediately in the things that have been made. The revelation of God is undeniable to every single person who ever has existed, who now exists, and who will exist. Every person suppresses that knowledge of God, Romans 1.21. Every person lives a thankless life before God. Every person hates God. Our problem, therefore, is not a knowledge problem, as some of you have heard me say. Our problem is a suppression problem. We do know God, Paul says. The things about him have been plainly, clearly perceived, excuse me, plainly perceived, as I merge words here, and yet we suppress that knowledge. So because God has chosen in his magnificent freedom to reveal himself, we can know who God is. Aquinas is dead wrong. Second, justification, he argues, includes infusion of grace. He writes this in the Summa. The justification of the unrighteous includes the infusion of grace. For Aquinas, then, justification of the unrighteous is not about the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. It is not fundamentally a declaration of righteousness. It is not a forensic decree. 
It is a change of the person such that they are infused with divine grace and thus live a grace-driven life, and that life they lead, as we shall see as we go, produces works that cooperate with God's grace to justify them. So justification for Aquinas is not imputation. Uh, It is not a decree. It is not being counted righteous in Christ. It is instead an infusion. It is a personal change. Aquinas then shows us what the Roman Catholic Church is going to do in the 16th century in roughly the mid-1540s through the early uh, 1560s in that he is combining what we would call sanctification and justification. And the reformers of the 16th century altogether rejected this kind of theology. They argued not for the infusion of divine grace, but for the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. Every sinner who is regenerated and thus exercises saving faith in the atonement of Christ is counted righteous. There aren't works that they do by any infusion of righteousness in them that contribute to their justification. The person who is counted righteous will always go on to produce real fruit, but that fruit does not help to make them counted righteous in God's sight. No, God imputes the righteousness of Christ to them, even as our sin is imputed to Christ, reckoned to Christ. So Aquinas on justification is dead wrong, and this is terribly significant. Third, according to Aquinas, the sacraments are necessary for salvation. Let me give you the sentence as it appears in the Summa. The sacraments are necessary for man's salvation. This is also dead wrong. There is nothing about the sacraments that saves us. We should be baptized. That's the fundamental mark of the Christian faith, of obedience to God as a born-again believer, to be baptized in a local church, and then, as a baptized believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, to then feed on the memorial uh, uh, offering of the wine and the bread. So we do believe very much in the ordinances as Baptists. We do believe that Christians should observe them. We do believe, in fact, that being baptized and taking the Lord's Supper is a matter of obedience to God. But the sacraments are not necessary for man's salvation. Aquinas is saying this because Aquinas helps to set up very substantially what is called the sacramental system. He's building off of Augustine, who argued that baptism regenerates you, which is a very, very serious error, one that Luther himself will repeat, which means that Luther got in through the door of salvation, but it might have come very close to hitting him as he walked through it. Baptismal regeneration is no glancing matter for anyone. Nonetheless, Luther clearly did believe in justifying faith of the kind we have just laid out, and so I believe Luther is regenerate and is in the kingdom of heaven. But Luther did not accept the sacramental system at all in the way that Aquinas set it up. Aquinas set it up so that you need the sacraments in that they give you justifying grace. They, they help to present you a justified sinner before God. And this begins in fourth baptism. 
According to Aquinas, baptism regenerates the sinner. He says this. These are simple sentences. By baptism, a person is rather regenerated spiritually in the Summa. This is altogether wrong. There is no biblical truth in this statement. Just as the sacraments are not necessary for man's salvation, so baptism does not in any sense regenerate anyone. This is not a glancingly wrong matter. This is not some people out there, according to our reading of eschatology, getting a few details wrong in terms of the run-up to the return of Christ. That matters. We don't take that lightly. We don't take anything in theology and doctrine and exegesis lightly. But this is an error of the highest order. By baptism, a person is rather regenerated spiritually. No, you are not regenerated by baptism. Baptism does nothing to regenerate you. Baptismal waters matter for the one who is born again and now is testifying to the church and the world beyond that he has become a Christian. Baptism is glorious. Baptism is the first step of obedience in the Christian faith in a public sense. But no no one, there is not one person who has ever been regenerated through the baptismal waters, through the sacrament air quotes of baptism. There's not one. You will not meet one person in heaven, Christian, who has been regenerated by baptism, who is in heaven because they were baptized. The thief on the cross was born again, and he was not baptized. Further, there is no New Testamental teaching that would give us the conclusion that when I or you are baptized, we are regenerated. No, regeneration is a miracle wrought of God where he sends the Spirit, John 3, the Spirit blows where it wishes, and that Spirit gives us quickening such that we then believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration has nothing to do with baptism. If a teacher were to show up in your local church and teach this, any sound elder, any sound member should act with appropriate restraint to close down that teaching and remove them at once from the church. And this is, is one of the core ideas of Thomas Aquinas. And Thomas Aquinas must not be graded on a curve. The, the ideas of Thomas Aquinas must be taken straight as they come. There must not be any massaging of these statements. It's appropriate to understand them in terms of his broader body of thought. That's why we're doing even here uh, a summary of several views and not just one. I want you to hear multiple ideas from Aquinas, and we're just scratching the surface. But actually, even though we're scratching the surface, we're burrowing into the core of his ideas, of his theology, of his system. And you see from convictions like this, along with others I have mentioned and will mention, that this is a rotten system. If a preacher or teacher in your church, Christian, started teaching 
baptismal regeneration, and necessary salvation through the sacraments, you would rightly seek to remove them on the spot and certainly in the future from that teaching office. You would bring, if you have any biblical fiber in you, discipline against them in the church. And if they persisted in that teaching, they would be removed from the membership of the church. And yet, today, this is the figure who some argue, a scattered few argue, we should embrace. He's been left outside the camp for too long. Well, listen to me. It was right that previous generations warned the church about Thomas Aquinas. It is right that he has never been accepted into the pantheon of reformed and sound teachers because he is not. Fifth, Aquinas argued that the Pope must be obeyed as the functional head of the church on earth. Here's what he says in the Summa. The head here is Christ himself, in whose place the sovereign pontiff, that means Pope, acts in the church. So then schismatics are those who refuse obedience to the sovereign pontiff and who refuse to communicate with the members of the church subject to him. What Aquinas says here is that the Pope acts in the place of Christ. So Christ is the, is the head of the church and the Pope essentially is the functional head of the church. And if you refuse obedience to the sovereign pontiff, you are a schismatic. Don't misunderstand. Everybody who is embracing Aquinas, who is in any sense a Protestant and doesn't follow the Pope, would not see Aquinas embrace them if he was living today. If you don't submit to the authority of the functional head of the church on earth, the sovereign pontiff, you are a schismatic. So we're playing fast and loose with Aquinas and Catholic doctrine here. And it's tragic to see. Th this kind of point no longer seems to land with a good number of seminary professors and pastors today. And it's absolutely tragic because if you take Aquinas at his word, if you take his word seriously, and you should take every theologian's word seriously, agree with them or not, ideas matter, sentences matter. If you do so, then if you do not obey the Pope, you're a schismatic. And I want you to understand that there is absolutely no biblical justification for receiving the Pope as the functional head of the church. The Pope is not the functional head of me. The Pope is not the functional head of you. The Pope is not the functional head of anyone. It's fascinating that the Reformed Baptists, as we would call them, who formulated the Second London Baptist Convention of 1689, regarded the Pope, put it into their confessional statement for all time to come, as the Antichrist. Today, ultra-confessionalists are actually in the very strange position. The irony is rich as truffle fries at this point of simultaneously arguing for ultra-confessionalism, subscription to every jot and tittle of the confession with no points of disagreement or no degrees of emphasis, 
And yet these same figures, several of them, they're not a large group, but they are embracing Aquinas, mainstreaming Aquinas, quoting Aquinas on social media, endlessly banging the drum for Aquinas and others. And yet the confession that they subscribe to, a very strong confession, is a confession that regards the Pope not as one deserving of obedience as the functional head of the church, as Aquinas clearly stated, but as the Antichrist. Listen, listen to me, whether you're a Reformed Baptist or not. The 17th century Baptists who wrote that document were on the money. Whether we see the Pope as the Antichrist or one figure among many who incarnates the spirit of Antichrist, and there is room for discussion there in my view, the point lands. The, the Pope blasphemes God and occupies an office that no human person has ever occupied or will ever occupy. It is occupied only by the God-man Jesus Christ, truly God, truly man. Jesus Christ is appointed by the Father before all the foundation of the earth. Ephesians 1, as the head of the church. Jesus Christ and Christ alone is the head of the church. 1 Corinthians eleven three. The Pope has no authority over you and me. And if you've been taught that, if people around you are saying that, if they are warming to that idea, as no doubt some evangelicals are, some seminary students are, some people in churches are, warn them in the strongest terms and love not to embrace this idea. It is not an unusual thing for evangelicals, in particular younger evangelicals, in particular more intellectual evangelicals, and in some cases evangelicals who haven't had a local church background that has been doctrinally thick and historically engaged to cross the Tiber, as we say. There's a book called Evangelical Exodus, for example, that features numerous stories of students at Southern Evangelical Seminary under Norm Geisler, who started reading Thomas Aquinas, and a bunch of them, I'm sure not all the students of that seminary, but a bunch of them crossed the Tiber and became fully Roman Catholic. And if you read Evangelical Exodus, you will see that the figure who appears over and over in their, air quotes, testimonies, is Aquinas. And part of what Aquinas teaches you, as you take him seriously in his writings, is that you need to obey the sovereign pontiff. And I am here to say, you don't need to obey the sovereign pontiff one bit. In fact, you better not. The one you must obey is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and the Pope is a pretender. The sixth teaching of Aquinas we need to mention here is that penance removes sin. The sacrament of penance, he writes, comes in the removal of certain matter, namely sin, in the sense that sins are said to be the matter of penance. So Aquinas creates a sacrament, along with other Catholic thinkers, and that sacrament is called penance, and penance is the removal of certain matter, namely sin. So 
the the works you do, the good works you do that contribute to your salvation, they remove sin. This very simply is an utter rejection of biblical teaching. There is no sacrament of penance, and the good works you and I do as believers matter tremendously to God, but they in no sense, in no sense, remove sin. You obeying God as a, as a believer, by the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit in you, when you obey God in discreet acts, you do not remove one one millionth of one tiny little sin you commit. You honor and glorify God by a holy life. That's your calling as a Christian. But there is no sacrament of penance, and your works do nothing to remove your sin. This is an utter fabrication. Penance does not remove sin. Tragically. Millions, probably billions of people have heard these kind of sentences and believed them. And those who have believed them, those who have been led into these false ideas, this false doctrine, have not gone to heaven. They have gone to hell. The stakes are that high. We are not playing games when we talk about doctrinal teachings. To get it biblically right, as God gives you saving faith, is to live everlastingly, to go to heaven and then live with God forever in the new heavens and new earth. And to get these things wrong, to get salvific doctrine wrong, is to be destroyed eternally and to be thrown into the lake of fire beyond all time on the last day. The stakes are that high, and there are voices in the church who are bringing this man's ideas before the church and putting the sheep in grave danger, the gravest danger there is. This leads to our seventh and final idea that we will cover here. I say all this with fear and trembling. I don't say it with glee. I don't say it to win an argument or to draw a crowd. I say it out of love. I say it to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine, Titus 1.9, for they surely are those who embrace these ideas and even those who bring these ideas into the church leaving the sheep vulnerable and susceptible. This is tremendously dangerous. This is the greatest danger there is. This is worse than having a murderer outside your door. This is worse than sleeping in a bed as your bedroom is on fire and the ceiling is falling in. This is worse than a car heading straight at you 120 miles an hour on the highway. It's all worse because this is not merely physical that we are talking about. This is doctrine that echoes into either heaven or hell. The seventh matter I will cover is the very matter that sparked Luther's rejection of Catholicism, that sparked the Reformation itself, that began the movement we call Protestant. The reason why I am sitting in a 
an office in Conway, Arkansas, at a school called Grace Bible Theological Seminary. The reason you go to any Protestant church you go to in America and far beyond America across the world is because Martin Luther rejected this point. Indulgences remit sin. Here's what Aquinas wrote in his writings on the book of Lombard's sentences. Indulgences hold good both in the church's court and in the judgment of God for the remission of the punishment which remains after contrition, absolution, and confession. He who grants indulgences pays the debt of punishment which a man owes out of the common stock of the church's goods. Thomas Aquinas lived about 300 years before the Reformation. So Martin Luther and John Calvin and others never, of course, engaged Aquinas face-to-face. Nonetheless, it is this teaching that broke Luther's back. To put it more specifically, that broke the back of Luther's Catholic confession. He came to understand that it was horrifically corrupt for the Catholic Church to sell indulgences which forgive sin, which remit the punishment of God. This this remission comes out of, according to Aquinas, the common stock of the church's goods. This is a completely fabricated theological concept. There is nothing in the Old or New Testament that grounds the idea of indulgences. Indulgences are a lie and a lie from the pit of hell. Luther understood them rightly. Luther was right to be roused against Catholicism itself over this point. And the man who most helps develop this concept, he's not the only Catholic figure who wrote on indulgences and supported the idea, let that be said, but the heavyweight theologian of the 13th century and of all centuries of the Catholic Church, with the possible exception of Augustine, is Thomas Aquinas. And Thomas Aquinas taught that indulgences, indulgences excuse me, remit sin. I want you to hear from me, seeking to stand on the Word of God, no major heavyweight theologian myself, only trying to be faithful to the Word of God, that indulgences do not hold good either in the church's court or in the judgment of God. If someone has bought an indulgence, if they have, let's say, secured a piece of paper that grants them an indulgence for certain sins, or they bought an indulgence for someone else, a loved family member, something like this, I have very bad news. You have wasted every penny you spent. You have a piece of paper and nothing more. Not only this, you have been sold not just a piece of paper. You have been sold falsehood. Indulgences will do nothing for your soul or anyone else's soul. This is not a kind of neutral idea introduced into the soteriology of the church. This is a direct counter to biblical doctrine, to Christology, that Christ alone by his blood remits sin. 
without the shedding of blood. There is no remission of sin. Hebrews 9.22. Aquinas also has a wonky doctrine of the atonement. I'll leave that for another day. Suffice it to say that his wonky doctrine of the atonement, the atonement not being propitiatory fully in nature, sets him up to then have the wonky application of the atonement in other parts of his theology. And this is one of those parts. The atonement for Aquinas is not that which decisively, once for all time, propitiates the wrath of God and remits sin. The atonement has some kind of satisfactory role, but it is also a kind of exemplary offering showing ultimate love to God. And so there is this possibility in Aquinas' system that indulgences can play a great and vital role, such that punishment, the punishment of God, that is, is remitted. The punishment that remains after, as he says, contrition, absolution, and confession. And I am here to say that this is not just a slightly different presentation of the remission of punishment, God's punishment of sin in the scripture. This is a direct rejection and counter proposal to it. And anyone who would bring such teaching into a Christian setting is taking burning coals to their chest. And by the way, there are some academicians who are trained in theology and skilled in theology, and for them at least, they are able to balance true ideas from Scripture and false ideas from Scripture. And they are a born-again believer. They're a Christian. The problem, well, there are numerous problems already as they receive unbiblical teaching and embrace unbiblical ideas and try to integrate it with the true system of Christian truth from the Scripture. But the, the, the problem that flows from that is that there are going to be a lot of sheep who are not trained in theology and who are not able to hold ideas in tension and who will be let off. And this is not, of course, to puff up the academic guild. This is not to say that seminarians are a higher class of Christian. No such reality is true. There are plenty of seminarians, even as I have already mentioned already, who over the years have read thinkers like Aquinas and have walked away from the true Christian faith. And they have done so in part because they have come to believe ideas like this, that indulgences remit sin. Indulgences remit the punishment of God. Only Christ remits punishment. Only the blood of Jesus Christ washes us clean and satisfies the wrath of God. There is nothing the church can offer the sinner to remit punishment but the blood of Jesus Christ. There is nothing the church can promote in the world of men but the gospel of forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ. There's nothing we can sell. There's nothing we can develop. There's nothing we can peddle, as Tetzel did in the 16th century, finally waking Luther up to the tremendous danger he was in and people all around him were in, and the plight of many before Luther in which a church that professed to be the true church on earth actually was functioning as the gateway to eternal damnation.
friends, these ideas are not subsidiary ideas. These are not small matters. These are the most significant truths and anti-truths there are. So what does all this mean? Well, it means that, as you've already heard on this humble little podcast, we have to take Aquinas and his thought with the gravest seriousness. Thomas Aquinas is the key architect, certainly in the last thousand years, of Roman Catholic doctrine. Thomas Aquinas funded the decrees, the canons of the Council of Trent. Jeff Johnson has written very well about this matter in his book, The Failure of Natural Theology. The Failure of Natural Theology. I want to encourage all of you to purchase this book and read it at once. And here's what Jeff has written about the Council of Trent and its relation to Aquinas' thought. In 1546, as Luther lay dying in Eiselben, the 19th Ecumenical Council of the Catholic Church had only recently been convened by Pope Paul III. There at Trent in northern Italy, the best Catholic theologians, mostly committed Thomists, Jeff writes, had gathered to determine how best to counter the Reformation. The only book that was placed on the altar next to the Bible at Trent was the Summa Theologica, Aquinas' book. And this for good reason, for the decrees and anathemas of the Council of Trent of the 16th century, which condemned all Protestants to hell and have never been revoked, were principally based on the Summa. We can continue the point. In fact, the Pope affirmed that Aquinas' doctrine was the key funder of the doctrine of Trent. Johnson writes, this was affirmed by Pope Pius IV, who presided over the final session of the Council of Trent in 1563. On January 6, 1564, he issued a papal bull, Benedictus Deus, ratifying all of Trent's decrees and anathemas. And just a few months later, on March 4th, he went on to ratify the Index of Forbidden Books, which threatened excommunication for those reading or possessing any of the works of Luther and Calvin. And according to the Pope that followed him, Pius V, Aquinas was the authority behind the decrees and anathemas of Trent. Aquinas claimed Pope Pius V was the most certain rule of Christian doctrine by which he enlightened the apostolic church in answering conclusively numberless errors, which illumination has often been evident in the past and recently stood forth prominently in the decrees of the Council of Trent. More recently, Two Catholic scholars, Cesario and Cuddy, write this. As the presence of Thomists in influential positions at the Council of Trent suggests, anyone who wanted to exegete the main dogmatic definitions contained in the decrees of the Council would have to consult Aquinas, especially his Summa Theologiae. Johnson makes all these points and then adds another one. The key defender of Trent's doctrine following this period that I have just named, was Robert Bellarmine. Bellarmine lived from 1542 to 1621. Bellarmine wrote a huge polemical work against Luther and Calvin and others called Controversies of the Christian Faith. And Bellarmine's primary reference for the Catholic position, for Tridentine doctrine, 
the doctrine of Trent that he promoted was none other than his favorite theologian, Thomas Aquinas. The point then in all this, all this historical theology that um, I've leaned on Jeff Johnson for here, but many others have said as well, is this. The Council of Trent depends upon the soteriological concepts, arguments, and ideas of Thomas Aquinas. He is the most certain figure who provided the doctrine that formed the decrees of the Council of Trent. Don't take my word for it. Take the word of Pope Pius V. Take the word, then, of a pope. And Trent is the council that condemns the Reformation. And don't hear that as some infighting like on a message board somewhere. What the Council of Trent does is it pronounces Reformational doctrine as anathema. And so the the Reformers, by extension, throughout Trent, if you read it, are anathema maranatha, damned at the Lord's coming. But not just Luther and Calvin, friend. Any of us who would affirm Reformation theology, anyone who would line up as a Protestant, is in that same school and subject to that same faith. We, too, are anathema, maranatha. Now, of course, Vatican II in the 20th century is going to loosen some matters of standardized Catholic doctrine, let that be said. But Trent has never been repealed formally and officially by the Roman Catholic Church. And so, what we need to recognize is that if we are embracing Aquinas, we are embracing the figure whose doctrine most shapes the stringently anti-Reformation doctrine of Trent. What Trent formulates, friends, in the simplest language I can give you, is a false gospel. It's not the true gospel. It's a false one. Luther and Calvin and others, many others, the English Baptists, tons of others, understood after the initial spark was lit by Luther, by God's grace, that the Catholic Church was not the true church, that it taught a false gospel, that it did not give people the truth about God. It is true that Thomas says some true things in his writings. It is true, furthermore, that he is very intelligent, very learned. But Thomas is not fundamentally a sound guide. He has not been accepted as such in generation after generation of the Protestant movement. Of course, there are different folks who have warmed to him at different points and churches and movements even. But Thomas has never come into the mainstream of the Protestant church. And the reason is very simple. He didn't want to be, he wouldn't want to be, and he doesn't fit. Tragically, Thomas is not in any sense a sound guide on these matters that we have discussed, with special reference to soteriology. Not only soteriology, but with special reference to soteriology. He is the one who lays the groundwork for the anti-gospel of Trent. This means that Whatever good there can be found in certain elements of Aquinas' body of thought, Thomas's theology has helped lead many people to hell. I'm going to repeat that so you don't miss it. 
Thomas's theology has helped lead many, many, many people straight to hell. As they have believed ideas like those I have covered in this podcast, as they have believed his sentences that I didn't put into his mouth, he put them on paper long before I was a speck on the horizon. As they have believed that baptism regenerates them, as they have believed that the Pope is the functional head of the church, as they have believed that the sacramental system is necessary for salvation, as they have believed that indulgences remit sin, as they have believed that penance removes sin, as they have believed that justification includes the infusion of grace, as they have believed that we cannot know who God is, and so what we should do is turn outside of Scripture to natural theology. In these and many other areas, they have been not led toward God. They have been led away from God. And to be led away from God is not to go stand in a weird place somewhere. It is to go to hell. The stakes are as high as they can be on these matters. You should take stock, very careful stock, of who is promoting Aquinas, especially if their promotion is not strenuously qualified. I don't believe Aquinas should be promoted at all. He is a reference. He is a theologian who wrote a great deal. Theology students in particular may read him, may well read him. I'm not opposed to that. But I, in saying that, am not promoting his thought in any positive sense. There are certain ethical matters, there are certain places in his body of writings that someone will find truth in, matters to agree with. But fundamentally, you should not understand Thomas Aquinas as one who helped formulate reformational doctrine. You should understand Thomas Aquinas as the key architect of anti-reformational doctrine, of the Catholic anti-gospel. Hear me as I wrap up very clearly. You do not love Roman Catholics today by embracing their theology and canonizing their saints. You love Roman Catholics today by proclaiming the true gospel to them and calling them out of Rome and out of their dependence on Aquinas and others. This podcast, my stand here with other faithful men like James White Jeff Johnson, Sam Waldron, and many others, is not motivated by hate. It's not motivated by a partisan spirit. We're not out on a football field somewhere wearing jerseys, and some of them have Team Aquinas on them, and others have Team Calvin on them. That's not what this is. This isn't trifling. This isn't you like your favorite theologian, and I like this one better, and they're basically the same, and they agree on the same matters, and so we're in a kind of food fight in an academic sense. No, this is a matter of heaven and hell. And I see among my peers today not true love of Roman Catholics in a deeply biblical sense that challenges them and calls them out of Rome to embrace the true biblical gospel. I see many thinking they are loving Roman Catholics in that form. But the way to love Roman Catholics, the way to love anyone who is in a system that is not teaching the true biblical gospel and giving them the true biblical worldview, 
and giving them the true biblical God is not to affirm them. It's not to partner with them in a serious way. It's to call them out. It's to call them to repentance and faith in the true Christ. So many just want to make friends today. I want to make converts. Does anyone out there still want to make converts? Does anyone out there still love sinners who are caught in unbiblical religions and unbiblical systems enough to share the gospel, the true gospel with them and call them to repentance and faith in the name of Jesus Christ? Is there anyone left who will still do so? Or are we simply accepting what scattered voices are telling us? That though there is a humongous body of doctrine that stands against the Scripture, all the old boundaries have fallen away, and we're all basically the same, holding the same views, worshiping the same God, but just with a few tweaks. Friends, I call you to love. I call you to charity. I call you to faith in Christ. I call you back to the task of converting the lost, depending fully on the grace of God in that great work. Stop trying to love sinners by affirming their thought. Start loving sinners by rejecting their strongholds. Don't let others bring those strongholds into the church. There is a long line of those who have read Aquinas and other Catholic authors and have crossed the Tiber. We may choose in our seminaries or in other settings to engage his writings. We may see truth in certain places. But we must know that this man's theology and this man's soteriology in particular is nowhere near sound. It has helped lead many to hell. This is a warning for the modern church. We are drifting. And some among us who are preachers and teachers are actively encouraging the drift. In love, it is time for us to speak the truth. In love, it is time for us not to affirm sinners just like us who are caught in false systems. It is time for us to return to the spirit of the Reformation and reject strongholds that take people captive and bind them and send them packing to hell. It is time instead to rise once more and to proclaim the gospel of Christ and to call sinners just like us to salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. Christ and Christ alone gives the gospel. Christ and Christ alone offers the shed blood 
that remits all our sin. This remission cannot, as Luther understood, be purchased. This remission can only be received by faith. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.